welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Really appreciate you all being here today. If we haven't met personally, my name is Scott, and I serve as part of our pastoral team here at Commons. And as Larissa said a few minutes ago, we really do hope. If you are looking for some ways to connect in our community that you will consider our groups and our dinners... And we know that leaning in to relationships like this and even these kinds of blind dates that we end up in and these kinds of groups and dinners and these such, these can be a little bit tough with our busy schedules and all the commitments that we carry. We totally get that, actually. And this is why we try to make these gatherings as natural as possible, try to remind you of them remind you of them from time to time and because we know that relationships and connections these things they really are good for us and these things help us to flourish when they happen organically and with some simple intention on our part so there's again your invitation hope you'll take us up on it and having said that if you have any questions about community or you want to chat about something that might be happening in your life I'm always available to grab a coffee I actually work here in Inglewood on 9th at Gravity um, Espresso and wine bar. It's usually espresso bar when I'm there. So if you're in the area and you want to meet up, just send me an email at scott at commons.church. We'd be happy to meet up sometime when it works. Now, with that said, today we are jumping back into this series that we started our community year with, where we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you aren't following along in our journal, I invite you to pick up one of those at our Connection Center before you head out today. And if you have been tracking with us so far, you know that we are coming close to the end of this extended look at Jesus' teaching. In fact, after today, there's just one more week left before we move on to a new conversations, because friends, it is almost November, 66 days till Christmas, no panic. Now, it seems a little drawn out sometimes when we take a week to look at just a few lines of Jesus' sermon, but truth be told, we haven't even been able to cover everything that Jesus says in this teaching, and so you maybe want to take a few minutes to follow along and read it on your own if you have the space to do that, because the reality is that there's so much going on in this text. And I think last week was such a good example. I mean, Jesus effectively says to us, he says, don't judge anybody. And then he gives a carpentry analogy to explain himself. And that's as simple as it can seem until we do a little work here. And we realize that Jesus wasn't instructing his followers to stop evaluating the actions and the emotional health and the toxicity of the people around them. And he wasn't telling them to not use their brains and disconnect their intellect and their wisdom. No, the passage that we read actually has this section at the end there where Jesus instructs his followers to take care with others around them. And that said, Jesus was clearly concerned that his closest friends not judge each other unfairly. He says, why point out the speck of sawdust that your sibling has in their eye when you literally have a plank hanging out of your face or something to that effect? And in these words, we observe that there's more than just an exaggerated analogy. Jesus lived in a world where they believed that you could look in a person's eyes and you could get a sense of who they were as their truest self. And so at least in part, Jesus was challenging us and anybody listening to think about how we look at those that we love. We look them in the eyes and how we have a tendency to look at them and see only the problems. And this is a practice that's so familiar for us, I think. 
one that often leads us into relationships that are marked by nitpicking and fault-finding, where often our critiques of others can sometimes show up in the forms of underutilized creativity that we have and underdeveloped commitment to that person where we'd be better off using our energy to help and assist and care for them. And these ideas that Jesus is playing with in the text are a bit of an invitation to us where we're able to consider all of the ways that Jesus comes. And Jesus undermines this image we have of God as a meticulous nitpicking judge. And to be quite honest, that image of God is super familiar for some of us, where God looks and acts a lot like me, always looking at other people and seeing only the things that they do wrong, quickly judging and dismissing and condemning them. And this is an image, the longer we look at Jesus, that image starts to fall away. And it cracks and it comes loose as we learn to see the welcoming, redeeming, transformative nature of God. In Jesus, that goodness is extended to the crowds of farmers and fishermen that were running around ancient Palestine with him and to their devout religious cousins. But then it's also extended to me and to you and to every person we know that has a bit of something in their eye. And when God isn't a ruthless judge anymore, you know what? There's something about that that frees us from having to be one too. And with this in mind, let's pick up where we left off. But first, join me in a quick moment of prayer. Loving God, creating, redeeming, sustaining presence that is all around us. To you, our hearts are open and our desires are known today. And we are brought to this moment by grace. You care for us the ways that we return again to community, to familiar faces, to new ones, to the care and friendship that we experience even this morning. And wherever we find ourselves today, gentle spirit, help us to be aware of your work in relationships that are strained, in anxieties that are carried, in the illnesses that weaken us even now, or perhaps in some newness or some relief that has blessed us this week. These things, we hold them now. We ask that you would help us to be aware of the kindness that you shelter us with and help us to be present to how you're shaping and comforting and transforming us. And as we bring these individual stories to this space, we also recognize that we bring our collective stories as a nation together today. And so we ask that with a big decision ahead of us tomorrow that you'd give us wisdom for our shared responsibility of choosing our leaders, that you'd give us courage for the shared responsibility of forming a society that's more just and more welcoming and more like the world you imagine, and that you'd give us a love for the people around us who seem so different from us. Let your kingdom come. Help us as we work to make it more present in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city. We pray in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. 
So a story as we get going today. Our family moved back to Calgary in 2016. I was shifting in my career and joining Commons, and when it came time for this move we were making from Waterloo, Ontario to Calgary, my wife Darlene and I, we decided to road trip and to make it into a bit of an adventure. And we love camping, and Ontario Provincial Parks especially are amazing, so we chose a couple of these to hit on our way west, including the famous Sleeping Giant Provincial Park, which is on the northwest corner of Lake Superior. It's absolutely amazing. And I pulled some screenshots. Maybe we can flip to those now. We got these screenshots from my Instagram just the other day. It's a must-see. Sleeping Giant is amazing. Lots of people hashtagging it. We, this is why we made plans to stop there. It's absolutely astounding. And we hope that maybe you will someday. So anyways, we, we packed our van and we hit the road. And you just need to fast forward to the point in our journey where our air conditioning dies, which is always a bad sign. And then as we were pulling into a Tim Hortons trying to figure out what's going on, we're somewhere in Northern Ontario and I see this woman sort of, as we drive by, she sort of gives us this crazy look and I'm like, I, I know we're in a minivan, but I don't need, we don't need the dirty looks. And then as we sort of pull to a stop, I realize that our van sounds an awful lot like a helicopter, which is not good. So we still really want to get to this park. So we just stay on the road. We got to get to Sleeping Giant, but something's wrong. And so we pull into this Canadian tire in Marathon, Ontario. Just Google that later. It's a blip on the radar, and it's three hours from where we wanted to end up. And the short version is that there was this vital engine component about to explode, one that they told us would take four to five days to arrive because it was the September long weekend and we were in the middle of nowhere. So I was texting our lead pastor, Jeremy Duncan, telling him, you know what, I don't even think we're going to make it for church next Sunday. And Dar and I just sort of resolved ourselves, you know what, we're going to not get to this intended destination that we want to get to. But we had a van full of camping gear and we decided, hey, you know what, Let's see if we can find somewhere to camp close by, since all the motels look sketchy. And so we stumbled, we, literally, sketchy. We stumbled into Penn Lake Park and Campground, which none of you will ever visit, but we got to. And we got this spot, and this, I, I pulled this one off Instagram too, this spot right here, right beside this lake. Our tent was exactly where that guy's is sitting. We have this beautiful little lake and this beautiful campfire, and we were visited by a black bear. It was amazing. So delightful in its own way. Now, the story gets so much better, including the, this part, or the, the fact that the wrong part arrived the next morning, and so the mechanic actually had to MacGyver our van together with one of the three belts he had left in that Canadian tire, and we drove the rest of the way to Calgary, just barely held together, seeing all kinds of amazing things, including the most brilliant northern lights I've ever seen in my life. And the point, well, is that misadventures have a meaningful place in the stories that we tell. Which brings us to the text today, where Jesus, at the end of this sermon he's giving, says famously, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And I'll just stop there because some of you might be aware that this text echoes some others that we have that speak about our connection to God through prayer, such as when John's gospel has Jesus inviting his disciples, quote, to ask him for anything and that he'll do it. 
And this is why, at a cursory glance, it seems like we're being encouraged to use a particular posture and particular actions in our connection to the divine. And we're assured that God will respond at the very least. The catch is that these themes of seeking and finding, for instance, that Jesus is pulling from, they show up in the ancient world a lot with these references to how people would search for and pursue truth. There's one Greek philosopher who lived about 500 years before Jesus. He wrote about how God, the gods of the, that he knew of hadn't revealed everything to human beings, but that human beings through time, quote, seek and find out the better things, end quote. But then there's also, as biblical scholars note, there's hints within the Hebrew tradition of seeking without finding, as we see in Proverbs chapter one, where wisdom comes and warns the foolish person in the poem. Then they will call to me and I will not answer. They will look for me and I will not be found. And then there's instances of finding without seeking, as we see in Isaiah 65, where God says, I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. I was found by those who didn't seek for me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. That's a delightful image. God trying to get people's attention. They're not even looking for him. Which is to say, in some sense, that the scriptures don't seem to have this simple view of prayer like Matthew's text seems to imply. Where there's this direct correlation between our asking, our seeking, our persisting, and all of our best outcomes. I mean, that might seem a little self-evident, given that Jesus quite famously saw some of his prayers go unanswered, especially at the end of his life. But I imagine that most of us hear these verses, and we have our own suspicions of just how economic and transactional Jesus seems to be making faith sound in these verses, which is why it's so important to hear these words of Jesus in relationship to others like those from Isaiah 65 that I read to you where if nothing else, you acknowledge that your spiritual journey doesn't have to be as seamless as Jesus makes it sound, and that your misadventures are a source of divine encounter too. Maybe you can see this in how economic downturn in this city over the past few years has left you really disoriented, but how that experience has brought you new affection and new opportunity and new self-awareness and new trust that you're grateful for. Or maybe because of some event in your life, you've decided to shift in your physical health or in your mental health, and while it hasn't been easy, you realize how your spiritual well-being is tied to this holistic approach to your journey, despite the twists and turns. Perhaps you went through a season where your faith just wasn't easy anymore. Maybe you walked away from community, you walked away from friendships and relationships, and it cost you. And whether you would do it the same way again or not, what you have discovered is how mercy has followed you wherever you go. And it's kept you. There might even be some of you that are here in a spot like that today. And Jesus' words seem so beyond where you think you'll ever be. Regardless, I think it's important to take this wisdom in Jesus' sermon and pair it with some of the other wisdom in the text, learning to trust that not unlike our family's cross-country trip, your detours and your changes of plans, whether you choose them or not, they bring you to places of discovery and delight that you cannot imagine missing out on, where you come to see life as a misadventure of grace. Now, 
scholars do point out that these first couple of verses that I read to you already, they seem to have inspired some questions in Jesus' audience, where people are sort of sitting back going like, really, Jesus? Is it true that we can live in the world asking and seeking and knocking and expecting God to just answer? And the reason that scholars think that these questions are implied is because Jesus continues right into a justification of what he's just said. And here's the text. Which of you... If your child asks for some bread, you give him a stone. And if he asks for a fish, you'll give him a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And listen, I know that I'm not the only adult here in the room today who when an infant child asks for a piece of cheese or a cookie in a restaurant, you slip them that lemon that was in your water just to see their faces implode. Am I the only one? <laughs> I'm a terrible father. Anyways, the reality is that these images of our children and or of children and parents, in them Jesus is working towards this kind of lesser to greater comparison that he uses a lot. Where if one thing is true, how much more true is this other thing? And his point seems to be look, you live in the world and you question whether God is good enough to trust with your asking and your seeking and your knocking. Listen, Jesus says, if you all, being evil, and that's not a compliment, but the adjective here, poneros in Greek, it means flawed or bad or wicked. It just means, and it's just getting at our propensity to mess things up and be mean to each other all the time. Jesus says, look, if you all, being human, can create a world where there are moments of generosity and care and respect, and a world from time to time that in the smallest of places looks and sounds and feels like God's best, how much more might your asking and your seeking and your knocking spark divine response? And we're gonna come back to these verbs that Jesus uses here before we're done. But first we need to look at how Matthew seems to be putting these sayings of Jesus beside each other because maybe you didn't catch it. Jesus makes this claim. You act in a way that inspires respect and trust, so don't you think God does the same? And then he just rolls right into, so in light of this, in everything, do to others what you want them to do to you. This is the heart of God's revelation to the world, Jesus says. This is what all of the Jewish law and prophets hang on. This. When you give your children what they need and what they demand impatiently and not what they deserve. When you give your friend your attention, even when they don't value it. When you love your migrant neighbor, you give them some space to be heard, to try their English, to be seen in the neighborhood, they may not understand you, but you do it anyway. Or when you're kind to your supervisor or your manager or that colleague who's self-centered and rude and an Oilers fan. <laughs> or when, when you honor your partner with faithful affection and your unseen service, the things they never see you do. When you do these things, Jesus says, you don't just offer an exception to the general evil of our species. 
No, he says you, the best in you, it makes the world, or it makes a world where any person who has need and asks, where any other person who seeks comfort and goes searching, where any other person who's desperate and goes knocking, when you do things like this, Jesus says, you build a world where trust can be found and belief can grow, doors can open, and hope can actually come to those who need it. And when you consider that some version of the golden rule, which is this, do unto others what you want them to do to you, some version of that has been celebrated in so many different cultures. We know it's been attested by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. It was expounded on by the ancient Chinese moral teacher Confucius. It was even taught by Jesus' contemporary, the Rabbi Hillel. When we notice this, the fact that this rule, this Compulsion is everywhere. We catch a glimpse of how the best in us, extended out in the simplest of ways toward each other, how this isn't some unattainable moral code or it's not a virtue campaign we're on. This is at the heart of how God remakes the world. Now, up to this point, I've been wrestling with you with this language that Jesus uses here. In part because I think that wrestling sometimes leads us to new perspectives that can be really helpful. And this shouldn't surprise us because as priest and author Michael Casey contends, the Bible is an instrument for salvation only because it challenges our habitual beliefs, attitudes, and behavior. And I would agree with Casey, but I would also add that sometimes the scriptures and even this sermon from Jesus, it challenges the beliefs and attitudes and interpretations we have about the text itself. Whereas we've already talked about, if these few lines here are really more than just a cheery encouragement to pray more, and if we learn to hear the golden rule as this invitation to participating, something that's far grander than our own moral improvement, then we start to see that there's this strong undercurrent to the passage. How Jesus seems to be taking and then talking about a general approach to life. An approach based on the assumption that we can trust that life is good. That in spite of the observed fact that humans are not good, life is. See, in this way, Jesus speaks to a fundamental skepticism that I think swirls around all of us, where we distrust those around us. We form this belief that life, as we are living it, it's a little dangerous, it's risky. And don't get me wrong, most of us know the pain of broken or failed relationships. And our news reminds us daily of failed human connections played out on a global scale, which is terrifying. And there are times when we have to be honest about what it costs us to live in the world. But Jesus seems to be getting at how a fundamental skepticism about the world leads us. As those who might be trying to follow Jesus into the world, this skepticism leads us to stop asking and seeking and pressing through. And it doesn't take very much intuition to look around and see some of these tendencies, I think. In the divided cultures and neighborhoods and commitments that inspire apathy in us. Does anybody else feel that? in the tension of a world that's so diverse and so mashed together and the chaos sometimes leaves us in a really diverse gathering feeling so alone. And then sometimes what happens is we end up separated into these factions filled with only the people who agree with us. But I think there's more here. What about the ways that you and I let 
our past stifle the way that we might grow into our most sincerely held beliefs, even though they're different than what we knew. How maybe some of us let someone's criticism of our sincere questions limit our search for meaning and a meaningful life. Or maybe we avoid the questions that we know we have deep inside us because we aren't quite sure we can trust those who we love with our doubts. Some of us aren't even sure we can trust God with our doubts. And that kind of world does form a certain skepticism in us, for sure. And to be honest, it's these kinds of questions that help me see how the scripture challenges our beliefs, our attitudes, and our behavior. Because I think if we really look, we can see that Jesus in this passage is changing metaphors. And we did something similar with this last week. And in changing metaphors, this is what poet Rosemary Watola Traumer, she uses this kind of language to describe what happens when we unearth the assumptions and ideas that control how we live. And if Jesus is doing this, then Jesus is challenging me here about more than whether my prayers are fervent enough. And he's urging me to evaluate, honestly, if I live in a world acting as though God is actually really good. And for me, those challenges lead me to extend the images that Jesus gives us here. Extend from the verbs ask and seek and knock. Extend into the ideas of imagination and curiosity and flourishing. And maybe this week you need to reflect and come up with the words that you would choose. These are just some that I use in the hopes of connecting Jesus' language in the text with the tangible expressions that are needed in my world. Where instead of asking and wondering if I'm asking well enough or asking God for the right things, perhaps we choose to see our relationship with God as connected to our imagination. Where we imagine becoming a person and a community that's open to refugees and open to those who have fewer means and open to those in our culture who experience discrimination where I imagine the details of every day I live as rooted in divine encounter, in which I bump up against the beauty and the creativity of God in those that I meet, even those who make my life difficult. And where I imagine, and hopefully you could imagine your work too, serving and teaching and treating and planting and creating and befriending, imagining our work as part of how God is faithfully present in the world. Or maybe you've spent moments and seasons wondering if you're seeking well enough. Some of you felt like you're off the spiritual map. And maybe alternatively, it would be helpful to think about living a spiritual life that's defined by curiosity. And that can be found by trying new prayer practices as we did in our contemplative prayer event yesterday, maybe finding new rhythms of quiet, and if quiet is not possible for you, then maybe just learning to sense God in the beauty that you encounter every day. And we have some books in our bookshelf that can help you, they're helpful resources in trying to do this work, but maybe it's possible that your situation has recently changed and you feel a sense of distance from your faith where instead of assuming that you should be seeking better to correct that, perhaps a better question is to ask yourself, can I be more curious? How am I growing? How have I changed? What new space am I in with God? 
Or maybe you have some tough questions of the scriptures or of the traditions that you grew up in or even of our community here at Commons and maybe you need to be encouraged to carry those questions well but to be more than cynical and skeptical which you know in your heart forms a certain hardness in you. And in choosing to be opening to these questions, you'll find that you are curious about where God might be at work in you. Or maybe, in some part of your life, you feel like you've been knocking. And for whatever reason, you aren't sure that's the most helpful metaphor anymore. And I wonder if you might imagine your faith as a source of flourishing in your life. It's possible you've been walking through a difficult season with your mental health, for instance, where you feel like the pursuit of steady rhythms, this has cost you a lot. And you feel like the door to wholeness isn't opening fast enough. And maybe what's needed for you is to be in that space and to take stock. Instead of thinking about how slow the door's opening, to think of how far grace has brought you and how there's new life in places that six months ago you couldn't have imagined being true. Some of you today might be sitting in a strained relationship and you need to be reminded that your pursuit of your own flourishing and the flourishing of that other person, that pursuit will be a north star for you in whatever difficulty you face. Or maybe you feel like your journey of faith has included an awful lot of messing up and backtracking and restarts and you need to be reminded that faith is only ever our feeble expression of trust that God might be better than we can imagine. A realization that's growing in you even as you fail, producing a heart that's more alive and more at peace and consequently more gracious with those around you who are the same. Whatever the case, may you hear in Jesus' words today the assurance that the misadventures of your life have carried you forward. And may you hear that the best in you in a hundred simple ways helps others to receive and to find and to open towards God's great goodness, which is the same goodness that fuels your imagination, it guides your curiosity, and it leads you into flourishing. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, we are present to you again today. And as always, there is a way in which you come near to us as we open our minds and our hearts to the text. There is a way in which you draw near to each of our individual stories, and I'm grateful that your great goodness, it, it holds all that we have with us right now. Where we are distracted, maybe where we are disturbed, where some of us might be anxious this morning, oh God, would you come and help us to see and trust that the twists and the turns of our life and even what feels like a bit of a misadventure sometimes, that we can learn to trust that you are at work in this. And there's something about learning to trust that when we do and then we start to extend that out to those that we're around and we just start doing what's best for others, doing what we hope they would do for us. What a beautiful thing it is to see that the best in us opens the door for you to come through. 
and to make the world new in ways that we could not imagine. And so we ask in a million simple ways, would you give us courage to imagine and to be curious and to pursue flourishing with you as our guide, we pray in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.